Regular listener, why not check out our YouTube channel for more Arsenal and general football content? Over there, you can sign up to a Chronicles of Aguna membership, gain access to our exclusive members-only content, as well as our private Discord server. But above all, you'll be supporting me to bring you more content and continue what's been an amazing journey covering the Arsenal so far. Enjoy the show. It's the Chronicles of Aguna. It's another podcast and we are live. listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90 Min. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, and on this edition, we're going to be discussing Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Is he captain material? We're going to be digging a little bit deeper into what happened yesterday, the repercussions of that, and what it says to us about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's credentials as a captain. We'll also be looking a little bit into the tactical side of the game and how Arsenal managed to dominate Tottenham Hotspur yesterday, uh, despite the Lily Whites coming into the game in really, really impressive form. So all of that to come on this edition of the show. But first of all, how much easier is it to drag yourself out of bed and get started with work on a Monday when Arsenal have just won the North London derby? I mean, for me, it was... I was looking forward to getting up and talking about it and writing about it and discussing it and, you know, reliving, obviously, what happened. And look, we've won North London derbies in far more impressive fashion over the years. We've won North London derby in derbies in far more explosive fashion over the years, of course. But this one was um, was different because... We've been enduring a difficult season, right? Particularly in the Premier League. Things haven't gone to plan. There's no getting away from that. There's no shying away from that. That's the reality. And so a a derby win is something that you can, I guess, dine out on for a little bit, right? You can dine out on it um, for a couple of weeks in terms of the Premier League. Now, I know if we go and, and blow it in Europe on Thursday, people will have a very different view on that and a very different opinion on that. But for me, it's something that I'll carry with me now, at least until Thursday. Um, puts a smile on your face, gives you a spring in your step. And um, I talked about the game in the build-up and I talked about the fact that I felt that Spurs' ruthlessness in front of goal would be the difference. Um, I guess that was proven right based on the fact that they literally had one shot in the first half, scored one goal off the back of it. Um, and I worried that Arsenal were not going to be clinical enough. And, and to be honest, early on in the game, when they hit the crossbar and then they hit the post and then a couple of other opportunities, most notably one that fell to Alexander Lacazette, were spurned, you started to worry, you started to fear the worst. So, um, yeah, pleased with the win, pleased with the dominant nature of the overall performance. I know we had a, a 15-ish minute spell uh, towards the back end of the game. That was um, that was not ideal, but nonetheless, um, as Omar says in the chat, we've started the week off right. 
I just want to give a, a mention to to Jermaine Genus's pathetic, biased, over-the-top coverage uh, of the two controversial incidents in the game. In my opinion, they're not controversial, but they're being called that by the kind of wider audience. Um, the penalty award, Stonewall penalty for me, not changing my mind on that, seen it time and time again. And then the sending off where Eric Lamella simply deserved to be shown. Uh, the red card. So no issues for me from me on either of those decisions. And not just because I'm an Arsenal fan, not just because they went our way, because I genuinely don't think that Michael Oliver got those wrong. And I've seen the, the coverage and the reaction and, you know, this overblown thing about Michael Oliver off the back of this. And do you know what? There's only one person that you need to congratulate for that. And that is Jose Mourinho. And you know why? Because he's successfully, as he's done throughout his managerial career, found something, found a particular point, found a particular thing, and he has turned it into a deflection away from the fact that his team's performance was shocking. It was negative. Tactically, they were clueless and completely outdone by somebody that you would class as a rookie manager. Um, in comparison to Jose Mourinho. So for me, Jose Mourinho knows exactly what he's doing. That's why he's still managing in the top sort of echelons of the Premier League. Because ultimately, for me, his methods are outdated. His tactics are outdated. He's a dinosaur. He's a horrible, poisonous character to have around your football club. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you get a reminder of why he is in the job that he's in still. Because... He has this knack and this ability to be able to deflect away from any wrongdoing on his side and the fact that his team didn't perform and pin it all on Michael Oliver. And he's even clever about it because he says stuff like, oh, you know, the only thing worse than that penalty award was our first half performance. So he's giving you a little bit of something about the performance. He's giving you just a, a little, you know, something to throw you off the scent to make you feel as though he's got a point and that he is being honest. But ultimately, we all know what Jose Mourinho is trying to do. So don't try and pull the wool over our eyes because it's it, it's it's boring. It's actually embarrassing. Lots of you commenting as well um, on Jermaine Genus. Baker Man says he's the most unlikable pundit and person on TV. Um, Matt G highlights a comment from him where he said it was a foul, but not a penalty. Exactly. Um, absolute nonsense, wasn't it? Um, you know, and ultimately, right, we were we were due a decision. And I'm not saying that we were given decisions that we shouldn't have been yesterday, but we were due a little bit of a rubber the green. My God, how many decisions have gone against us this season and seen us ultimately drop points. So from an Arsenal perspective, even if you don't think it was a penalty, even if you don't think that Eric Lamella should have been sent off, <laughs> don't worry about it. I mean, you know, it's um, first of all, it's them. And second of all, you know, we've uh, we've had more than our fair share of unfortunate decisions. But reiterating the point, I don't think Michael Oliver got a thing wrong anyway. I thought he actually refereed the game pretty well. So um, now that I've got the referee stuff out of the way and I've got the little ranty bit out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Actually, do you know what? First of all, let me say a big hello to everyone in the chat because there's loads of you in there. Um Love to you all. Thank you for, for joining me live. Uh, thank you to everyone who's going to watch this or listen to this back. Don't forget, smash the like button if you haven't already on whatever platform it is you're joining me from. And uh, make sure that you subscribe. Leave us a review as well if you're listening via any of the podcast platforms. Right, let's um, 
Let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Now, of course, lots of controversy yesterday at the start of the game when Mikel Arteta faced the press and basically revealed that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had been left out of the side for disciplinary issues. Um, it came to light that that issue was that he had he'd not been punctual, he hadn't made the meet-up on time, um, and, and he broke the protocol that is in place for match days. So lots of... Um, Lots of talk has been had about that in the aftermath. I, I, I said it on last night's reaction show, um, the last podcast that we released. I did say that I felt Mikel Arteta probably didn't need uh, to give the information that he did. And I felt like he was almost preempting the criticism that would come off the back of leaving Aubameyang out if Arsenal had failed to get the result. There would have been those who went, well, hold on a minute. We didn't win today. We didn't score today and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was left out left out of the side. So Mikel Arteta, in my opinion, preempted that and felt the need to give the, the information. Or perhaps he knew that the information was going to come out and he wanted to get ahead of the game and maybe do a little bit of damage control. I don't know exactly, right? I'm not privy to, to what goes on in the dressing room. I'm not inside Mikel Arteta's head. I could only guess and speculate like everybody else. But that was how I felt about it at the time. Now, I talked about the fact that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang didn't look happy in the warm-up. He looked as though something had gone on. I, I talked about the fact that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang sat there with it almost emotionless throughout the game as well on the sidelines. But, I mean, I mean, what was more worrying and more concerning is a report that came out from The Athletic uh, this morning. And it, the report states that Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang didn't take part in the warm down with the rest of the unused substitutes, by the way. The rest of them all took part in this session um, with um, with the uh, Arsenal fitness coach, Shad Forsyth. Bellerin was involved. Holding was involved. Pablo Marie was involved. All of these guys um, who were unused substitutes took part. But Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang could be heard uh, revving his uh, fancy Ferrari, whatever it was. Um, and leaving the stadium at 6.46, so just 23 minutes after the full-time whistle. That has got to be concerning, right? You know, the fact that he's he's stormed off like that. And even if you don't think it's a big deal, you know, that he, um, you know, even if you don't think it was a big deal that he was a little bit late and he was left out and all of that, I just, this kind of behaviour for me is worrying. And I've talked a lot about it in the past. I think that Arsenal as a football club have got this horrible history of giving captaincies to players that are important players, very good footballers and very important parts of our team, but are not necessarily captain material in this desperation to keep them at the club, in this desperation to persuade them that they are the main man here and that they are wanted here. And I feel as though this... Um, this is another case of that. Now, I don't really blame Mikel Arteta for this one because it was Unai Emery, if you remember, that stripped Granit Xhaka of the captaincy and handed it to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And your Mikel Arteta coming in, you look at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, one of your most senior, most important players, as he proved at the back end of last season. How can you walk in and say, you know what, uh, Pierre, I don't think that you're captain material, so... 
despite what's gone on in the past, despite me having just arrived, I'm going to take that captaincy away from you and I'm going to hand it to X, Y, Z because I think that they are better suited to the role. You can't do that um, as, as Mikel Arteta. And even now, even after all of this has gone on, I still don't think he can do that. I still don't think that Mikel Arteta can, um, can um, you know, can can act on this. Uh, you know, he's he's obviously worked very, very hard behind the scenes to keep this guy at the football club. The club have obviously stretched themselves financially to do it as well. And so for me, it was it, it's something that would literally send shockwaves through the camp if he was to strip him of the captaincy, particularly given how popular he is. But when I come back to that point of is Aubameyang captaincy material, the answer is no. Um, you know, Xander Xander points out that he was he was pictured stuck in traffic. Everybody's been late at some point in life. Just needs to leave his gaff with ample time in the future. I agree with that. Look, we've all we've all been there, right? We've all been late to work, and we've all got that classic response of, "Well, you should have left early." I used to get it all the time when I used to work in in Canary Wharf, um, in the city, and I used to, you know, I, my train ride was wasn't very long. Um, well, it was it was the problem was that sometimes the trains would be delayed. You turn up on the platform ready for your train uh, with ample time, as, as Xander says, to get on that train and get into work with plenty of time to spare, even time to go get yourself a coffee, whatever. And then that dreaded thing would come up on the board, right? Delayed. And, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's absolutely nothing you could do about that sometimes. And I used to get it. You know, I turn up in the office and the classic line from from management would be, well, you should have left earlier. Well, how much earlier do you want me to leave? Um, sometimes shit just happens. And I get that. I'm not. And, and I said it yesterday, you know, Mikel Arteta made it very, very clear that after the incident, after he was left out of the side and, and left out of the side and replaced by Alexander Lacazette, who had a good game, impacted the game. You kind of, you go, right, a line's been drawn under this and it's done and dusted. And, and if you're late, Oba, you just got to accept it, take it on the chin and move forward. But for God's sakes, driving off without taking part in the warm down, um, for me, is is not acceptable. And that's where this situation has gone from being a bit of a non-incident. Be, well, it's not a non-incident. It was still unacceptable, but it's gone from being something that was this big to something that is now this big because... He's shown that he's got the strop. He's shown that he's got the hump. When actually, Aubameyang um, could have just uh, could have just dealt with it. You know, could have just taken it on the chin, got involved, done his bit, apologized to his teammates, apologized to his manager, who's already said that there's a line been drawn underneath it, and moved on. And he's in, instead he's he's thrown his toys at the pram and done what he's done there. And I don't like that talked about it before I feel like at times we've given captaincy to players who didn't warrant it just because we were desperate to keep him and I feel this is another case of that having said that to be fair to Mikel Arteta I don't see how um how he can rectify this now without causing a major issue so yeah um there you go that's my thoughts on the on the Aubameyang thing. I guess the, the final thing I'll add on that is that this is not the first time he's been disciplined for something similar this season. And that is a concern. It's not a one-off. Um, you know, Arteta again tried to play it down, said we all have things going on in our lives, etc., etc. Tried to play it down because Arsenal had won the game. But, you know, we've we heard that he, he missed the COVID test uh, ahead of a European trip earlier in the season. And he got disciplined for that. We also had the whole incident with the tattoo. 
you know was it done during lockdown was it done during the um was it done uh, during a time when it wasn't permitted you know the, it, that's the worry there's been two or three incidents this season involving Pierre Emerick Aubameyang and by the way you know I know that the club should do it I know it's the bare minimum and you'd expect your employer to do it wherever you work but the club did allow him to have time off um when his his mother was unwell and I'm not saying that that's something he should be thankful for um you know I'm not saying that um is something that he should, you know, forever be in debt to the club for. Because I, I, I would, if I'm employing somebody and they have a situation going on like that, I'd like to think that your human side kicks in and you allow them to have the time that they need. But the point I will make is that, you know, having done that, you've then got to fulfil your responsibilities. That's the minimum you've got to do. And as a former Kevin, former Arsenal man, Kevin Campbell says, man who knows, what it's all about to play for the Arsenal and, and a derby. He says, hi, Harry. Hope all is well. Feeling great today. Yet Aubameyang was wrong and should hold his hands up and accept it. The captain should lead by example. Completely agree. Um, and that's what that's what irritated me. You know, the first of all, you lead by example. You made a mistake. You hold your hand up. It happens. But then to drive off the way he did after the game and not take part in the warm down and go off in a little bit of a strop from what the reports are telling us. I have to stress that bit as well. Um, is a little bit disappointing and a little bit frustrating. I've got to be honest. Um, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the tactical um, side of the game, and then I'll come to get some of your questions on Aubameyang or the tactics or whatever it is that you guys want to discuss. Just a quick reminder: if you haven't already, uh, make sure you smash the like button. It is uh, really important and very, very much appreciated. Um, as a just touching on that as well, uh, Steve says, I'm not Louise's biggest fan, but when he messes up, he comes out and says, sorry, agreed. And that's kind of what it's all about for me. Uh, you know, you make a mistake. We all make mistakes. We've all done it. We will all continue to do it because we are human beings. But take ownership, hold your hands up, admit it, apologize for it and move on. Simple as that. Right. Let's uh, share the screen with you guys. And I want to talk through some of the tactical elements uh, about Arsenal's game yesterday that, in my opinion, allowed them uh, to take complete and full control of uh, of that game uh, against Spurs yesterday because I thought Arsenal were, were fantastic and I thought that Arsenal really did, um, you know, manage to control Spurs in every single way um, and manage to prevent them having very little of their own in terms of the attacking sense. And I want to start off by looking at Spurs' shape. And it was it was an interesting shape from Spurs because it looked on paper like a 4-2-3-1, if you want to call it that, um, with uh, Bale operating from the right, uh, Son operating from the left, and Lucas Moura playing in a kind of number 10 role. But actually, Lucas Moura was... Uh, was quite often pulling out to the flanks, particularly to the left-hand side. When you looked at the average positions map of the Tottenham players in that first half, which, by the way, was all pretty much in their own half, uh, you saw Lucas Moura pulling out to the left-hand side quite often. And what that would lead to would be uh, Hume Son making a diagonal run in towards the centre, into that inside-left type of channel. So it was very interchangeable. Jose Mourinho's system in terms of that front four. Uh, but beyond that, it was very rigid defensively and they tried to create a stability there um, 
within Dombele, playing in a position that I don't really think is his best position, which is deep in that midfield, alongside Hoybjerg, who literally goes around the pitch committing fouls uh, left, right and centre. So um, that was how Spurs lined up. But going back to, to Arsenal for a minute, or most importantly going back to Arsenal, I thought that what was really, really important was the role uh, of the fullbacks, as always. But I thought what was key uh, to unlocking Spurs was the targeting of uh, of Matt Doherty uh, at right back. He and Davinson Sanchez. I talked in the build-up about players um, in the Spurs team that were a liability and that would give you something if you, you know, if you press them, if you put them under pressure. And this was the area here where these two were occupying the pitch. Davinson Sanchez, they're the centre-back and um, and Matt Doherty at right-back. Now, if you are listening via the audio, I do apologise. There is no um, there is no graphics, obviously, because you're listening via audio. But if you fancy uh, watching it and, and understanding what I'm talking about, maybe a little bit clearer um, or a little bit more clearly because of the graphics, then feel free to head over to the YouTube video as well, uh, where you'll be able to see that. But I've highlighted this area between... Uh, the right back and the right centre back as the area that I thought Arsenal were really uh, looking to exploit. They identified it as a weakness clearly, and I thought they took full advantage of that. And what I was really impressed about was obviously if I move these players forward, so we can sort of demonstrate what it is we're talking about. You know, Emil Smith Rowe playing from the left hand side, and there was a lot of talk uh, in the build up or in recent weeks actually about Emil Smith Rowe playing in this. Um, left-sided position and whether it was wasting him and talking about the fact that maybe since Martin Odegaard came in, actually he's he, he may play a part in stunting Emil Smith-Rowe's growth. But I think it's um I, I think it's absolute nonsense. I think that the pair of them ha- can thrive in the same team. I think we saw that yesterday. And what I loved about Emil Smith-Rowe's performance here was you're talking about a right-footed player playing from the left-hand side and it would be very easy for Emil Smith-Rowe to always want to receive the ball here right on the touchline and look to drive infield every single time. That's what you expect from a player uh, playing in a, on his wrong side, for him to get the ball wide and to drive inside all the time. And that becomes a little bit predictable. And what that does is it allows the right back and the right centre-back to just get closer together, to just close out that gap and then almost force you wide and force Emil Smith-Rowe round on the outside where you'd expect given that he's a right-footed player, he'd be less comfortable. But Emil Smith-Rowe had some great variety to his game. And that was what I thought was really, really impressive about his display yesterday. He would come in at times, but he also trusted in his own ability and his own technical ability in terms of what he could do with his left foot to go on the outside of Doherty. And so often he found himself in this kind of position here where he could pull the ball back to somebody uh, like Alexander Lacazette. And Lacazette naturally is the centre-forward uh, makes the run towards uh, the six-yard box, towards the near post. He did that on a couple of occasions. One time he, he spooned the ball wide, didn't he, from this position. He almost, I think it might have gone out for a throw-in. That's how bad the effort was. But what's important about this, it's all good. Um, Emil Smith-Rowe being played in behind. It's all good. Um, you know, it's all good asking asking him to get in there and pull balls back. But aside from Alexander Lacazette pulling across the the front post, you need runners into the box. 
You need Saka coming in from this side and you need perhaps even more importantly, Martin Odegaard to make sure that despite chipping in defensively, despite chipping in as part of that centre midfield when Arsenal were without possession and dropping that little bit deeper to get on the ball, especially when Lacazette was dropping even deeper as well. He's got to then have that burst of energy and that enthusiasm and that desire to get in and around the penalty area in these kind of situations. And that's where the goal came from. Ball pulled back. I think it was Tierney that pulled it back the time that Odegaard scored, but it was about getting uh, beyond behind Spurs on that in that right-back position, which we identified clearly and we took advantage of uh, throughout the first half to pull it back and Odegaard scores from there. Brilliant. But it's... Um, it's about that. You know, we we never had this. We never had a Martin Odegaard in the early stages of the season. What we did have was fullbacks bombing right up the pitch because we had a back three. But you didn't have that extra midfielder. You and you ended up being in a shape like this. And that and it was difficult because what you were left with was a massive area of the pitch that was just not occupied by an Arsenal player. And that's why it was difficult for us to get get hold of games and to control games because we didn't have, you know, anybody that was in that position. Xhaka and Partey or Xhaka and Ceballos or whoever it was, was tasked with playing a deep line role. Yes, the fullbacks were allowed to get forward, but that massive area sort of in front of, in the centre, where all the action is in front of the opposition's penalty area was just often left completely untapped. And with Martin Odegaard in the side, what he's proven is that he can contribute in that area brilliantly scored a wonderful goal against Olympiagos and if there's one way to endear yourself with the Arsenal fans even further it's to obviously score a goal in the derby so credit to him for that um but it's just you know I talk a lot about I talked a lot about when Emil Smith-Rowe came into the side that it wasn't just about Emil Smith-Rowe and his brilliance it was about actually having a number 10 in the side and Martin Odegaard is proving that even more um, but what he's also doing is he's um, he's chipping in as a midfield player, particularly in games like yesterday, when we um, when we need to we need to see a balanced performance from him. And and I thought he was he was really really good. As was Emil Smith Rowe, made things happen. He's got that composure when he gets in behind the fullback to look up to try and pick out a pass. He doesn't just aimlessly smash the ball across the box. So lots to be impressed with. But um, just one other thing that I want to highlight in terms of, of of the tactical side of the game, you know, we talked a lot about how Matt Doherty was was the key uh, and was the one that Arsenal were always looking to expose. But if I just reset the players back into their positions and if I move the, the so-called Spurs players as well, although you could have just left them off the tactics board, we could probably delete Gareth Bale off of here and given his performance, it wouldn't have... Uh, you wouldn't even notice. That's how that's how much Arsenal nullified Tottenham. And, you know, to a degree, as much as Arsenal were, were really dominant and deserve a lot of praise, actually, if I was a Spurs fan, I think I'd be so disappointed at the way they just had zero ambition. And particularly given that they'd been in really, really good form of late, I just found it completely baffling that they played that way. But anyway, going back to, to the tactical side of the game, um, you know, I talked about Emil Smith-Rowe going on the outside of Doherty quite often. But obviously, being right-footed, he's got the capability to go on the inside. And you saw Tierney pushing up. You saw Cedric pushing up. And then he and Emil Smith-Rowe and Saka can get closer to Lacazette. And that's how that link-up happens, right? It's these little sort of... I guess I want to call it a triangle. Can you can you draw a triangle on this thing? Let's see. Yeah, there you go. 
No, is that not how you do it? No, I don't know. I'm still trying to work out how to use this bloody thing. Uh, but anyway, what have I done now? I can't even bloody undo it. Oh, <laughs> I'm having a shocker. I'm having a shocker with this. Um, how do you delete something? There we go. Is that the one? No, I don't know what I've done. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here, let me change this to the to the pen. There we go. So the point I'm trying to make here is that you had this, right? There you go. You can work out what I'm trying to highlight, even if it's poorly done, is that you had this almost triangle where Odegaard and Millsmith, Lacazette and Saka are all in, in tandem. And that is created by the fact that the fullbacks are coming up on the outside, um, occupying those spaces. And ultimately, then you end up in a position where you have essentially one, two, three, four, five, six players in an attacking sense. And you you saw it a little bit more often yesterday. You always see Granit Xhaka dropping into this kind of position, which is like a half left back, half left centre back position when Arsenal pushed forward. But you also saw Thomas Partey do it a little bit more on the right yesterday. And then you still end up with essentially what would be kind of like a back four. So this there's a plan when Arsenal attack. And it's not a plan in terms of... It's not a plan in terms of every single pass is mapped out. It's a plan in terms of these are the bodies that we want to get forward. These are the areas in which we want to be positioned. And then it's over to you guys because you have um, you have the right number of bodies there and, and the right quality of player in and around those areas. And when you talk about Emil Smith-Rowe and Odegaard being in the same side um, and you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe the question over whether they... They do complement one another. Actually, they're both extremely technically gifted. And when you're faced against a low block, which we were for the most part yesterday, you need those kind of technical players, in my opinion, uh, to unlock a team like that. So there you go. That's my uh, sort of brief uh, tactical analysis on some of the reasons why I thought Arsenal were so dominant. And, and, and that shape I talked about in the front line allowed Arsenal to press really effectively as well and win the ball back in high areas and prevent Tottenham from coming out so yeah apologies about the dodgy triangles and all the dodgy shapes uh, but there you go that was um, kind of my tactical analysis on why Arsenal were able to really really impose themselves on on Spurs uh, for the majority of that game I know there was a as I talked about it already a little bit of a period towards the end where we let we let control slip away I think that was down to nerves bad game management as Mikel Arteta has already alluded to but yeah, uh, lots of positives to take away from that. And um, if we can go and beat West Ham United and uh, we can get a result against Liverpool, you never know. The top six could still be a possibility for Mikel Arteta's side and how European football would make a difference to our summer transfer window. I cannot even explain to you. So, uh, yeah, we need it. Right. Uh, let's uh, get some of your questions in the live chat. I know you guys have been uh, showing lots of love and lots of interaction in the live chat. So apologies. I was so engrossed in what I was saying. I might have missed some of your comments, but now's the chance. Get your questions in um, and I will answer as many of those as I possibly can between now and the end of the broadcast. Uh, so make sure you uh, fill up that chat box. Um, Matt says, Harry, don't don't make me want this. Is that the top six finish? <laughs> uh, 
take it. Um, you know, we've got to we've got to have something to be excited about in the Premier League because I don't want it to just fade out into this dead season where I know the Europa League is the priority, but it does feel to me like I want us to be playing for something in the Premier League. Whether that has a negative impact on our Europa League campaign, I'd like to hope it doesn't. But I think that for the in order for the team to keep improving and the standards to to be kept to a certain level, I think we actually need something to play for in the Premier League. Let's uh, go on to some of your questions there. Matt asks, uh, can you give someone man of the match if they don't play the full 90 minutes? My man of the match is always someone who plays the whole match unless they're doing something exceptional. I think you can if they've had that, uh, if they've had a significant impact on the result of the game. For example, um, my man of the match yesterday was probably Emil Smith-Rowe. There was a couple of other candidates that I would have thrown into the mix, as I said on the last pod, but Emil Smith-Rowe was the standout for me and he didn't play the full 90 minutes. But I think he had such an impact on on our performance and all the good things that we did that I would like to give it to him. So I think you can, but I get what you mean. Um, and I understand that, you know, it's got to be a significant contribution to give it to someone who didn't necessarily play the entire game. But I do think you can give it to someone, as I say, if that contribution uh, was significant enough. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. Let's pick out a few more questions. Um, Somnath says, can we play FIFA career mode for free? What? <laughs> okay. Um, Leo Hagen says, um, Harry Kane, why does he get a free pass from the officials? Yeah, yeah. I was um, debating with a, a mate of mine earlier on who's a Spurs fan, and we were talking about the refereeing decisions and, and they obviously feel hard done by him. And I, I highlighted the Harry Kane thing. I even rewound my TV and, and took a video of it to send to him because it just amazes me how there could be so much bias towards one player that he just gets away with absolute murder week in, week out. If Granite Xhaka did that, if Eric Lamella even did that, to be even fairer, to look at it from a Tottenham perspective, he gets penalised for that. But, you know, people will say this is nonsense, but the fact that he's England captain does help him. It does help him. There's no getting away from that. Um, we've seen it with other players in years gone by where they've, in my opinion, received preferential treatment because of their status, because of their status within the national team. And so, um, yeah, I, I, it baffles me. It baffles me. You know, he, he backs into people. You know, there was that whole debate around the dangerous challenges. There was no getting away from that. Harry Kane is certainly guilty of all those things, but he seems to, for whatever reason, get away scot-free pretty much every single time. And I think it's quite frankly, um, I think it's embarrassing. I really do. Uh, Sam Tonk says, Sign Odegaard in the summer. Seriously think he can develop into Ozil version two. Yeah, I've I've literally just penned the piece that will probably um be well it will it should be out on the 90 min website at some point this afternoon in which i've said that arsenal should already uh be in negotiations with real madrid should it already be setting the ground work at least uh, around the idea of bringing him to the club permanently i talked about the fact that i do think that you know that obviously whilst there's no guarantee real madrid will want to sell him particularly if his performances uh, continue to impress but i do feel like Real Madrid's priorities this summer are going to be very different. They're clearly after Kylian Mbappe. Uh, they're clearly going to make a move for him this summer. Florentino Perez has talked about it. He's talked about the fact that they've been preparing for that transfer for a while. But given the impacts of the coronavirus and the global pandemic, I expect, as does pretty much anybody who's anybody and, and knows a bit about Spanish football, 
that Real Madrid will be looking to raise funds. And I do think that if a 30, 35 million euro bid was tabled by Arsenal for Martin Odegaard, I think that Los Blancos would consider it. And I think so. we need to be trying to understand and get a bit of an understanding or a feel of what that looks like, what a, a potential deal looks like, and then doing our best to make that happen. So there you go. I'd definitely do it. I'd definitely sign him if it were up to me. But of course, there's there's a lot of factors we have to think about, right? Real Madrid, obviously hold all the cards, the transfer fee, can we afford it, etc. But if you're selling me that I've got a, a blank checkbook, then yeah, absolutely, I do sign him. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Westbird says, do you think our tempo is better without Ober in the starting eleven? What I think is better without Aubameyang in the starting eleven is our press. I think our press as a front line is a lot more effective with Lacazette in it. Um, I feel like Aubameyang just doesn't want to press sometimes and doesn't when he's off the ball, he doesn't play with the same intensity that Lacazette does. Having said that, there were a couple of opportunities that came Lacazette's way yesterday that he completely spooned. And you could argue that he was a little bit fortunate with the penalty in the sense of, yes, he's been fouled, but he's completely fucking miskicked that ball. Um, and he's got away with it because Davinson Sanchez is a moron and comes and clatters him from the right-hand side. But it, I think as a team, we press better and in turn, that makes us more dominating and in terms that makes us look better. Um, but what I would say is he's not clinical enough. And that's why if if he is going to be the centre forward or, or if Aubameyang is not going to be the centre forward, I should say, then we have to upgrade in that area because I need someone who can do that job but can also be more clinical when those opportunities come along. That's the one thing that has always let Alexander Lacazette down for me. Omar says, Partey doesn't look quite as dominating as he was at Atletico and has looked quite sloppy lately. What do you think could be the issue? I think fitness is the issue uh, with Thomas Partey. I don't doubt his quality. I just, I do worry about his fitness because there have been a number of injuries. And even after having fully recovered, as we're led to believe, he still doesn't look at the races is the intensity and the speed and the tempo at which the Premier League is played uh, completely different? Has it thrown him off? Probably. Um, and, and is he going to need some time to adapt? Often players do. Um, so I think we've still got to, um, I think we still got to be patient uh, with him. Um, but yeah, I agree. And, and I've said that he's... Um, his performances have been a little bit below par in the last couple of weeks. But to answer your question, I don't think it's due to a lack of quality. I don't think it's due to a lack of class. I do think it is. Um, it is just a, a fitness thing. And I hope that in time that'll be corrected. Uh, just quickly, this one from SP. Do you think we can now play our B team against Olympiagos? I wouldn't say I'd go with a full B team because I, I, I think that it's so important that we uh, make sure that we do a professional job and get through the second leg. But I would rotate some players, yes. And I think with Aubameyang, with Bellerin, with Pablo Marie, even holding, if you want, with Elneny, with Ceballos, uh, with Pepe, you've got enough players to, to make five, six changes and still be good enough to get over the line in that one. So I would make some changes. I wouldn't call it a B team, but I would I would make some changes. Um into your says, Harry, would you rather top six or win the Europa League for me? It's the trophy all day. Yeah, goes without saying. I, I don't remember Arsenal winning a European trophy. So for me, that is um, that is more important than finishing in the top six. And ultimately, finishing in the top six gets us in the Europa League. But finishing in, but winning the Europa gets us in the Champions League, which I'd much, much prefer. Um, 
Yo-Yo says, do fans not grossly exaggerate the armband since Oba wore it while lifting the FA Cup Community Shield and Mustafi wore it before leaving the club? That kind of touches on my point earlier on where I said that I felt like the captaincy had been a little bit devalued and people had almost, people had almost, it, it had been devalued because Arsenal were almost handing it out to people that they were desperate to keep at the club rather than the person that was the right man for the job. So for me, um, yeah, the captaincy is not that big a deal, um, but I would still rather that it's with someone. You know, I say it's not that big a deal because there are people like Xhaka in the team. There are people like David Luiz in the team, Kieran Tierney, who are leaders. But I would still prefer it to be with the right person, someone who could turn up on time for games, the biggest game of the season, preferably. Uh, but there you go. Um, and as Wesbird says, and, and I think this is a great point, I think it's a burden for some players to wear the armband. I think it is too. Um, I think some thrive on it. And I think some some don't. Uh, what else have we got here in terms of your question? I'm running out of time. Uh, so I just want to pick out a few at random. So apologies in advance if I do miss your question. Um, let's, um, let's have a look. What can we take? What's not similar to the ones we've already had? Uh, Akil says, do you think we still need a more mobile midfielder in place of Xhaka? And in your opinion, who? Love from India. Um, look, Akil, I've always defended Granite Xhaka because I felt that the, the criticism he's received at Arsenal at times, not always, but at times has been unnecessary and has been over the top and has been harsh and horrible and vile. I think in an ideal world, you'd love someone who can do the job that Xhaka does, which is be positionally disciplined, tactically disciplined, maybe not disciplined in terms of some of his tackles and getting involved in certain incidents. But he does a very disciplined job from a positional standpoint for this Arsenal side. And in an ideal world, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I'd like Arsenal to to upgrade on him. Of course I would. Who doesn't want to see the best players in the world? at their football club. The issue for me is that right now, given the situation, given the position we find ourselves in, can we afford to upgrade on Granite Xhaka, number one? And is it a priority? When you look around the rest of the team, I think there are more there are more important areas and more pressing needs. And that's why, for me, I'd stick with Granite Xhaka for the time being, because I think he can do the job. I think his form over the last four or five minutes has been fantastic. I'd argue he's been Arsenal's most consistent performer, except for one mistake at Burnley, which seems to have defined his season in the eyes of many. And I think that's unfair. Um, so yeah, in an ideal world, kill, I'd love an upgrade, but is that the main priority right now? I'm not sure it is. And so I'd rather address other areas first. Um, that's that's how I see that one. Uh, a couple of you mentioned in Basuma in the, in the chat box. Um, you know, Bissouma's class. Um, well, uh, maybe class is the wrong word. It looks like a competent Premier League midfielder and someone that we could potentially look at um, in the summer. But yeah, it's it's not a pressing concern for me. It's not the biggest. If you said to me, order the positions in terms of priority of what of the ones we need to address, that's not the first one for me. I think we need more midfield depth because we just don't have enough alternatives. And we don't actually have a like-for-like like Granite Xhaka. You talk about Elneny being a defensive midfield player, but I don't think he does the job that Xhaka does. Um, Sabas is a slightly different player. He's a deep-lying playmaker. That's what I would describe him as. Whereas Xhaka can do that, but is also a bit more of a defensive midfielder as well. So, yeah. Um, 
love to do it in the future but right now it's not it's not the priority right i think i'm gonna leave it there just because i'm running out of time guys so i do apologize um thank you to everybody in the live chat for all your love for all your comments for all your questions um it's a really busy day for me on a monday always uh but it's part of the part and parcel of the job eh uh but yeah i'll be um I'll be commentating for VSIN in the United States on the game between Wolverhampton Wanderers and Liverpool later on. So I'll be heading down to the studio uh, for that um, around about 6.37 p.m. So if you're interested, I'll be sharing the link via my Twitter account if you fancy joining me uh, for that one. But um, yeah, if not, I'll catch you guys tomorrow. Cheers. All the best. listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler and you're listening to Harry Simeon.